It's 28 minutes now to nine. The time, time for your mediated conversation this Tuesday morning. Over the last few days, it's become more and more clear that a small group of pharmaceutical companies were able to force our government to sign a series of contracts uh, that places what appear to be unreasonable demands on government simply to get doses of COVID-19 vaccines. You may remember during the pandemic, the demand that people were pl- the demands people were placing on government to get vaccine doses around the world. Governments were trying to get as many doses as they could for their people because vaccines save lives. At the centre of this were several pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer and the Serum Institute of India, which made the doses. From documents made publicly available after a court application by the Health Justice Initiative, it appears our health department may really have had no choice. If it wanted the doses, it had to agree to certain conditions. So far, none of the pharmaceutical companies mentioned have, in so far as I know, responded to this in public. I'm afraid to say I'll be very surprised if any of them agree to answer questions on this topic. If they do come forward, if they make themselves available, we'll be very happy to present them to you here on SFM. So, without that, what happened and how did it happen? First, this morning, you'll hear from Dr. Nicholas Crisp. He was the person in charge of the vaccination program at the time, although I should say, as I understand it, in fact, I think he joined the department just after the contracts were signed. Then, from the organization which got these documents and have been going through them, Fatima Hassan is the founder of the Health Justice Initiative. And finally, how can we prevent this kind of thing from happening again? Professor Alex van den Heerfer is Professor of Social Security Systems at Wits University. We start then with the Deputy Director General in the Department of Health, Dr. Nicholas Crisp. Dr. Crisp, good morning. Morning, Stephen, and morning to the listeners. I think we all remember the position the health department was in. The vaccine doses were being made in the US and Europe and then India. So many countries wanted as many doses as they could get. Our health department had to negotiate in that position. How difficult was that for our health department at the time? Yeah, Stephen, thanks. Uh, As you indicated, I wasn't actually in the department at the time, but I was helping out as an outsider in the in the COVID program. So and obviously, since then, have uh, heard what happened during then. Um, So look, the pharmaceutical companies were selling to countries all over the world. So they had a standard contract that they were dealing with everybody. There weren't, there wasn't really a negotiation. There was, you want to buy the vaccines. These are the vaccines that we have available. Uh, at the time, of course, we didn't know very much about the vaccines and what levels of side effects and things they would have because it was very early days. And so when you don't have that amount of data and you don't have uh, huge amounts of money to, uh, to negotiate your way into that space, you are, uh, um, you know, you're left with whatever is available at, the, at that time. So it, uh, and, you know, it's quite hard to cast your mind back to realize how much panic there was all around the world and people were busy with lockdowns and other things. There wasn't much room to move at all. I mean, I remember it so well. Unfortunately, just this conversation, I think, it brings back certain difficult flashbacks. And for you, it must, you know, feel like a bad dream again. Does all of this mean that the department probably had to agree to demands it would not normally have agreed to? There was real desperation. Yeah, look, we we don't procure that way ever. We don't. Uh, we go out on tender, and we uh, people submit their bids, and we look at prices. And even after those prices come in, we'll often go back, and we will have done our benchmarking. We'll negotiate prices. That's the normal way in which things are done. This was not a normal anything. 
And this was also payments upfront were demanded. We never pay upfront. We only pay after delivery. So th there's there's nothing. There's no precedent. It's never been done like that uh, in the past. But you know, you're trying to secure doses against a massive global market with no room to play with whatsoever. And if you don't uh, place the order and make commitments, you go back to the bottom of the queue. And it wasn't as if there were huge other numbers of alternative vaccines that were available at the time. We were also trying to understand whether these vaccines indeed worked for the variants that were in circulation at the time. And you will recall there was debate and unhappiness by some of the scientists who differed on which vaccines worked as well. So, yeah, there were so many unknowns and so, so little room to maneuver but we would never do it like this under normal circumstances. And I presume you would never do it like this again, um, unless, you know, the circumstances no. were like this again. Well, the trick is to prevent it that it's never like this again. So I think the whole world has learned um, many things during COVID. And the one is that we need to, uh, we talk about pandemic preparedness, but we, we need to be in a completely different space for whatever's coming down the line. And that could be quite soon, but it might be many years. And so we've got to keep our guard up all the time. And this is a global debate, obviously. We are not, we, we are not an isolated player in the world. And we're not even an isolated player in Africa. And, and Africa does not have the kinds of capabilities that other parts of the world have. So, of course, there's a scramble now. And you're aware of the African uh, developments in Cape Town as the mRNA hub, mRNA hub um, with the World Health Organization. There are also lots of discussions regularly and you know, quite robust about what we should be doing to negotiate uh, an instrument, they call it, or or an agreement or an MOU or whatever it's going to be called in the end of behavior of countries and companies when we uh, find ourselves in this kind of global situation again. Parties don't agree on all of the clauses within those agreements. So it's taking a long time to thrash through, form blocks, negotiate with others, and to um, make sure that, that we don't end up in this situation, especially for middle-income countries who don't have the muscle to buy and are not so poor that the, the big organizations of the world look after them. One of the interesting things about this is that these contracts were kept secret and released only after the Health Justice Initiative went to court. So ostensibly, a, a health the, the, the health department was forced to release them, although I must put sort of in brackets there, Dr. Chris, the health department didn't appeal the order. So, you know, I don't know how much opposition there was, but I'll put my speculation aside for a moment. What I'm trying to get to is at the time, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson insisted on a secrecy do you think it would have been different if they hadn't been able to insist on secrecy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, while we have a very transparent process. If you want to know what we pay for any medicines that are on tender from the government, you can just go to the website. You can see the date they were procured. You can see the dates of the tenders. You can see which portion of the tenders were awarded to whom at what prices. That's the way we do things, and that's the way we would like to do it in the future. But when you are in, stuck in that situation that we were all in at the time, and they, you know, and you're going to have to defend yourself in the United States or in London if you declare contents of agreements that have got very tight confidentiality clauses. Well, you have to honour that. 
Uh, there were clauses, not in all of them, but clauses that said that uh, if we were challenged in court, we had to inform them. And uh, if the court ordered us, there was a, I think it's a little bit ambiguous the way it's worded, but I mean, they would understand that we would then be obliged to, to honor what our courts did. Uh, there were other clauses around breach and, and um, uh, you know, force majeure and so on that one was not happy with those, but under this particular circumstance and not being able to guard on a tender and being, um, yeah, really the minion in, in the negotiating space, it was very different. It's not the way we do things. Um, I suppose a, a philosophical point, and I'll put this to Fatima Hassan in a moment, is that it was companies you were negotiating with, not countries. Um, and there are many strengths to to the system that was primarily, I suppose, in the US and Europe at the time, that companies had the biggest possible incentive to spend unbelievable resources in coming up with a vaccine. And they did it. And they did it quite quickly. Many people would say, suggest that governments can't do it. The weakness of the system is that you as a health department had to end up uh, negotiating with a for-profit company that can and did make a profit. Yeah, look, there were many things that upset us all. And you will recall at the time we were said, and not just South Africa, the world was saying these companies who developed the vaccines, it might have been in record time, but those, especially the mRNA technology, had been around for some time and was under development. It wasn't as if it was completely out of the blue. And much of that research has been done with government funding, not directly out of the pharmaceutical companies. So while they may have done the work in the R&D and put in the, the manufacturing processes to scale up and to distribute quickly, and we must recognize that they did uh, manage all of that logistics, uh, it was, it, it was it still, we felt that it was unfair that this was the way in which we were being dealt with. We keep using the word, word negotiation. There's no negotiation here. Here's the contract. You want to buy the stuff. This is the price. This is what's in the contract. You will have a no-fault compensation. You will have this. You will have that. We are going to cover ourselves. This is indemnity. That, that's how these contracts worked at the time. And I guess they didn't have time to go and negotiate with any of the 100 plus countries that they were working at. And that's why it was just laid down as a standard. Dr. Nickers, Chris, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate it. Deputy Director General in the Department of Health, 18 minutes to nine. Your mediated conversation continues here on SAFM about what we have found about the contracts our health department was forced to sign to get vaccine doses during COVID-19. Fatima Hassan is the founder of the Health Justice Initiative, the organization that won the court order to make these documents public. Fatima, good morning. Morning, Stephen. Thanks for having us on the platform. In your view, how onerous were the conditions imposed on the health department? What was our department forced to sign up to? Thanks. I think the conditions were onerous and one-sided for people in South Africa. It was forcing the South African people and our government through the proxy of the Department of Health to enter into contracts that we as a multi-stakeholder group have gone through and we've analyzed them. And, you know, there's, there's several provisions which hopefully we can talk through in this interview. Uh, that, in our view, is, uh, is actually very paternalistic and imperial. Now, Dr. Chris has mentioned some of those provisions, but, you know, I'd like to go through more. But I'd just like to pause for a minute and say that, you know, we really uh, 
very encouraged that the minister decided not to appeal the decision of Malajay in the Gauteng High Court. But the department did resist this case for two years. Uh, we actually have a cost order against it. And in its papers, in this particular uh, case, it said that the companies and the department had negotiated in good faith. Uh, and now we told that actually, uh, according to the Sunny Times recent article in the interview um, with Dr. Chris and what he said to you now, that that there was definitely a situation of bullying. And, and I think it confirms what the president has said on multiple global platforms in the past few years, that Africa was really placed in the position of a beggar. Hmm. Okay, so we have that position. So what did the companies then get away with? They got away with things like we had to pay up front. There was very little we could do if they didn't deliver. There were these conditions of secrecy. Yeah, and remember that we have received the unredacted contracts for three companies and one not-for-profit initiative. And I think that's the irony that COVAX was set up to be this tool that was meant to provide equity for countries in the global south. And we were told, don't worry about bilateral agreements. We will secure supplies for all of you in Africa and in Latin America through COVAX. So we actually have the contract for a not-for-profit initiative as well which in some respects and cases, those provisions are even more onerous than some of the provisions the companies insisted on, the for-profit companies. So let's go through some of the provisions. I think the most egregious, and this follows on from the New York Times stories, we have now confirmed it's in the contract with Johnson & Johnson, that that company, a multinational, basically decided to use the law of another country in respect of the jurisdiction of the contract and insisted that the South African government could not impose any export restrictions, which explains why when we were waiting for vaccines, at least 30 million vaccine doses were actually sent to Europe because they were the priority customer. It has now emerged uh, through additional media reports since this analysis came out that the president of our country went and actually attempted an intervention in Europe and with Johnson & Johnson and was so those vaccine supplies were basically leaving when we were facing uh, wave two and wave three. The indemnification provisions that Pfizer required, uh, Nicholas has talked about the no-fault compensation scheme, but it's not just against civil liability. It's also against protection of all forms of liability, including criminal. There are provisions around requiring the consent of these companies in the middle of a global pandemic, if you want to donate excess supplies or if you want to sell on excess supplies. And remember, everybody was entering into multiple contracts. So in essence, you were over ordering because as Nicholas indicated earlier, at that time, you were still waiting to see who could actually secure supplies for you. And you know, thankfully South Africa did that because for many months, Johnson & Johnson couldn't deliver on, on its promises because it was actually diverting supplies filled and finished in the Eastern Cape to people in Europe. There's, there's additional provisions around no uh, volume or price certainty. There's evidence of price variations. There's even reports that we may have overpaid compared to other countries uh, in the EU, including countries that had nothing to do with the research and development of some of these vaccines. So that argument uh, really, in my view, doesn't uh, hold water. And then I think what's really concerning is that even with the COVAX agreement, even with these for-profit companies, there are provisions on advance payment. And so there's a percentage of the advance payment that these companies would hold on to even if you didn't use the vaccine, even if the vaccine didn't get emergency use authorization or didn't come to market. So we have spent, you know, cumulatively between 11 to 14 billion rand of our public money on these contracts. And what we got was a drip feed of supplies in 2021. And so I think it just goes to the one-sided power of the industry and of Gavi in this particular pandemic. And all of 
them have really let South Africa down. And I think that these companies, you know, are being cowardly by not coming onto your show and to and responding to other uh, media out- outfits for comment after this really scathing analysis and the disclosure of all of the contracts, which, by the way, is on our website. Um, because they actually owe us an apology, Stephen. I really think it's not just about clarifying what price you eventually charge after three years of secrecy, you know, and making empty promises about being concerned about the, the health of people in South Africa and committed to the principles of, of equity. What they should be committing to is open procurement, transparency going forward, and, and really refunding us huge sums of money and apologizing to the people of South Africa. Um, what was happening to the profits of these companies when they imposed these conditions? They made a little bit of money during COVID, right? A little bit is an understatement. We've had 40 farmer billionaires in the space of uh, 2021 and 2022. Uh, while they weren't sharing the technology, which you know, in, in significant respects was actually funded by public funds. And collectively at one point during 2021, which is what we call the golden egg year, uh, these companies collectively were making $1,000 per second as profit. So, you know, I think it really, you know, behooves the shareholders and the boards of these companies to really take a deep look into what their future role is going to be in South Africa. How are we going to actually engage with them in a better, open, procurement, fairer, equitable process under national health insurance? Because when you're desperate for supplies and there is scarcity because of intellectual property monopolies, then you can tell any government in the global south, take it or leave it. And that's certainly what we don't want to happen again. Fatima Hassan, thank you. From the founder of the Health Justice Initiative, well, how do we stop it happening again? The question we'll put to Professor Alex Funden here for uh, that's next year with SFM. Your mediated conversation will continue 11 minutes to 9. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Eight minutes to nine. The time. Continue your mediated conversation around how a group, uh, two uh, international pharmaceutical companies, and one other were able to make a huge amount of money and in place onerous conditions on our health department simply to get vaccine doses during the pandemic. Professor Alex van den Heerfer is professor of social security systems at Wits University. Professor van den Heerfer, good morning. Good morning. I keep making the point that our health department was in a terrible position. We've heard Dr. Nicholas Crisp make that point earlier. We were demanding it get vaccine doses. The only place to get them were the pharmaceutical companies. Was all of this somehow inevitable? Um, I think so in some respects. Uh, The one uh, concern really about the process from the Department of Health side was how late it began its process. And I think that the, it's, it's quite likely South Africa would have been over the barrel no matter what, um, uh, uh, sort of, it, it, no matter which point it enter, entered into the negotiation. But it, it, the whole issue is that they would have had to be purchasing with uncertainty, both in respect of efficacy and, uh, uh, and cost. And the, a lot of countries entered into uh, uh, sort of risk-related agreements early in 2020 in which they made down payments. Um, on the understanding that they would be first in the queue on viruses that had no, so vaccines that had no tested efficacy at that point. So they were taking a bet that these things would actually, these vaccines would work and they were making sure they were first in the queue. By the time South Africa got going, other countries had already got their foot in the door and was coming in at the back end of uh, a world uh, in which essentially the um, the, the more, uh, um, uh, uh, let's say capable countries in some respects had got it got got ahead of the game, 
And South Africa was now coming forward and asking late in the day to enter into the fray. And uh, as a consequence, it was not only getting, um, uh, you know, contracts that were just given to it, but it was also uh, getting the, vac the vaccines in drips and drabs because the other the commitments to other supplies had already been made. So there's a, there are a whole lot of questions which um, which uh, 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 Fatima has raised about uh, the, the global situation and fairness, but it's very difficult to address that global fairness because it is down to the politic politics of every country as to how they look after their own populations. And if you're not taking into account the selfishness of other countries in the way in which you approach this game, you're going to end up being at the back of the queue. And I think that South Africa really could have paid a higher price even to get vaccines uh, early in 2021, which is when we needed them. And in fact, South Africa was not ready to vaccinate our healthcare workers going into what would be a, an inevitable third wave. And that ultimately had to be done with free doses provided by J&J, &J, which is not part of this conversation, which was part of the Sasanki trial. That's how our healthcare workers got vaccinated. Um, so that also comes into this picture because they were trial doses and they provided the first sort of 500,000 doses that were provided into South Africa. So it's so the issue is really um, how could we prevent this in the future? It's very difficult to tell. But I would have said it would have been better if we, even, in fact, even paid more <laughs> to get uh, vaccines in from January 2021, and we weren't ready. And so we were at the back of the queue on everything, supply as well as pricing. I remember, actually, I mean, we spoke to him earlier today, a coincidence, but Professor Salim Abdul Karim, um, who was in charge of the, the Ministerial Advisory Committee at the time, actually he, saying on this show he wanted to apologize publicly to the nation for not advising our government to move more quickly than it did. There were other things going on in the health department at the time, and I'm not certain it would have moved more quickly if he had offered that advice, but that's maybe a, a much more complicated conversation. Are you suggesting that as an outlook, we should have been a bit more cynical? Sometimes I think in South Africa, we expect the rest of the world to be quite nice to us because we try to be nice to the rest of the world. Maybe we needed to be a little uh, harder nosed in outlook. Yes, I mean that's if you go. It was predictable from day one, from sort of uh, March of 2020, that there's going to be a rush on the vaccines. And what would also be very predictable is that by the end of 2021, you'd have a glut of vaccines. So, but the the key issue is to be able to vaccinate early, not late. So, if we started vaccinating in 2022, we could have negotiated good prices, would have had easy supply, but it won't be much use because everybody who was going to die would have died. So, the uh, the idea is prevention and getting in early. Now, a number of countries, even smaller countries like countries like Israel, etc., uh, worked on the idea that that the world is going to be selfish and went in and, and booked those supplies. They booked Pfizer very, very early on. And so they were vaccinating very early on in the, uh, uh, in the pandemic while we were waiting in the queue. So I think that that's the issue is that I would have said, um, yeah, you would be a price taker and you would be a sort of, uh, <laughs> in terms of the conditions of the contract, you would be taking what is given uh, in 2020 in order to book uh, book the supplies. We didn't do that. We also didn't have a rollout program ready to run in 20, uh, early 2021. 
it really took the Sasanki trial to create the time really required to kind of set other things in motion. So even if we had the vaccines, we didn't actually have the logistics and the um, rollout program to actually administer them. And that took us really into April. Uh, so this is, that was problematic. We we really should have been much further ahead of the game, and and I think that the Department of Health has a lot to answer for in that uh, in that respect. But uh, uh, but uh, in terms of the global approach and um, and sort of re resilience, um, it's going to be very difficult setting up arrangements that are based in South Africa for supply in the future, because to be productive, effective, you have to have scale and you have to have large markets. And we don't actually have the support of the rest of Africa in terms of offtake. So it's very difficult to actually set up uh, a resilient framework. Um, Professor, very quickly, if you can, uh, you mentioned the point that it was sort of inevitable some of this would happen. It seems to me, unfortunately, inevitable that nothing has happened since then to stop the companies being in such a dem commanding position and such a bullying position if we have another pandemic. Yeah, it's not only in relation to the pandemic. This is, in fact, you know, issues have been raised for a considerable period of time about the way in which the pharmaceutical market is managed within the South African context. Uh, but it, it, South Africa can't address certain of these issues alone. It is actually very complex. These companies basically operate globally. And therefore, if you're negotiating anything, they will say, well, the decision's made in, in the US or it's made in Geneva. Uh, you just got to take it. And that's actually a fairly standard response. Um, certainly for the private sector drugs, the tender drugs will be different. <laughs> Professor Alex van den Heerfer, thank you. Professor of Social Security Systems at Wits University. My thanks also to Fatima Hassan, founder of the Health Justice Initiative. And Dr. Nicholas Crisp is the Deputy Director General in the Department of Health, who, of course, uh, was running the vaccine rollout at one stage. Well, it's been very interesting mediated conversation. There's a lot to chew over. We will be back tomorrow. Thank you for being with us today. From Zelma Stanza, do myself, look after yourself. You're with SFM leading the conversation. It's nine o'clock.